0: Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast, brought to you by the Freedom Model and Baldwin Research. Today's podcast features addiction expert, Michelle Dunbar, and yours truly, Mark Sheeran. This episode covers a controversial topic. Addiction is not a disease, and that matters. That's a a fairly provocative statement, and I hope we've gotten your attention uh, with that statement um, and the reason we start out with this is because for 30 years we've we've had parents and families and individuals calling for a solution and they, they explain how uh, they've had no satisfaction with treatment um, they know the relatives who have died after they've gone to treatment um, or AA and they're wondering why it doesn't really make any sense to them And so 30 years ago, we started looking at that. We meaning me, uh, myself, uh, Jerry Brown, Michelle Dunbar, uh, Stephen Slate, and the whole crew of people that work at our retreats. But we started looking at this and and seeing that uh, treatment, in fact, is harmful to people, that the 12 Steps is not the the paradigm that's the most successful program in the world, as it's touted to be. And uh, as a matter of fact, most of what you think works... Or is helpful to addicts and alcoholics is actually counterproductive and harms them Um, so we have families calling us knowing that that's the truth and wondering if they're doing something wrong and uh, and then they call us and they say I I need I need help or I need help from my husband I need help from my wife my friend Um, they've been to five rehabs they're dying and I need to send them to another rehab, can you help? And we say, first of all, don't send them to another rehab because that's not going to work. And, uh, and so the conversations continue and continue. And, and so here's, here's what I want to say. First, what you think you know about addiction isn't true uh, because it doesn't work, uh, treatment doesn't work, and addiction isn't what you think it is, and, uh, and that there is a solution. And the question becomes, what is that solution? So we're going to talk a lot about these things.
1: We, we decided to start this podcast series for three goals. We have three goals in mind. The first goal, of course, is to dispel the myths of addiction and recovery because they really do keep people stuck in a, in a lifestyle that is counterproductive, that is not helpful to them. We also want to provide people with the solution. And... Our primary goal right from the beginning, right from 30 years ago, has always been to change the addiction treatment paradigm. It's a problem. It's a problem to force people to believe that they're powerless. They're not. It's a problem to say that addiction is a disease, that actually using substances is out of people's control, that somehow people cross an imaginary line where they where they no longer have, have the power of choice. It's, it's never been shown to be true. And it's harmful to teach people that. So those are our goals. And and we want our listeners to understand that no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how helpless and hopeless that you feel, right now you have the power within you to make a change in your life. And hopefully through this series... You'll learn exactly how to do that what's the what's well the a mix? lot of people say to us they call us and say who are you to say addiction is not a disease and you know when every doctor says it is and and every PhD says it is well first of all they don't <laughs> yeah that, I
0: think that's <laughs> I think that's pretty important to know that there's 70 years of researchers that don't
1: <laughs> that don't think it's a disease that know yeah. it's not. Um, You know, there are diseases that are caused by certain behaviors, like you can get lung cancer from smoking, but the act of smoking is
0: something that you choose to do. It's a behavior. It's a a behavior. Yeah, a behavior is not a disease, and that's where people get, get caught up. And then sometimes they even go to the point of saying, well, drugs cause withdrawal, so withdrawal is a symptom of the disease. No, it's not. Withdrawal is a symptom of poisoning your body. I want to make that very clear. It's a toxic condition of the body. Now, let me, let me talk a little bit about disease. What constitutes disease? Disease is when you have a pathogen or an abnormal growth of cells that you can look at under a microscope. If you choose to drink a case of beer, there is no abnormal growth of cells. There's no life force within that beer that, that's forcing you to drink it. All right. Now if you have cancer, you can see the abnormal growth of cells. If you have, um, you know, uh, let's say pneumonia, you have bacteria that has its own life force, its own mission to actually consume a portion of your body and kill you. Um, so, so drugs and alcohol don't have life force. They're not an entity of themselves, But, but and I've talked about this for years. And I've talked to, you know, literally thousands of families about this. The myth of the disease came from, well, it predates AA, but it comes from the 1930s Alcoholics Anonymous organization where Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, uh, made a statement that said alcohol, and or drugs, is cunning, baffling, and powerful. Now, here's where history switched gears, and that is, they took the power of a human being. You have the ability to think, you have the ability to behave, you have a life force, you have free will, you have all these human attributes. They took those attributes out of the human being and they put it in booze. Now I want you to think about that. They call it cunning, baffling and powerful. Does booze run around? Does it, does, it, does the bottle literally run around and jump down your throat? It doesn't. It's not cunning. It's not hiding underneath the bar. It's not doing that, right? <laughs> so to talk about it in these terms, we have to really look at that and say, is it cunning, baffling, and powerful? Is it? Is it really? Is it powerful? It's simple sugar. That's what it is. Is the byproduct of bacteria. It is not a bacteria. It is not living. It is not any of that. It is a substance. It is a lifeless, inert substance. So so what, what causes um, quote-unquote addiction is... Uh, a person's drive and preference and desire to be drunk or high. So that is not a disease and it's not a chronic relapsing brain disease either. Brains change Uh, I don't deny the fact that that, uh, uh, if people drink and drug long enough, their brains change. Of course they do, but they change when you learn to play the piano, learn to walk, learn to talk, have sex, or any other behavior, your brain is constantly changing. And if you stop drinking and drugging with behavior, with choice, um, your brain will snap right back to homeostasis, and it'll be normal again. So it's a normal process for the brain to change. So they got the cart before the horse. So my point is, there's a lot of things that people talk about when it comes to addiction as if it's fact. And it's important to understand the words we use and why we say the things we say. But my challenge to the listener is to ask yourself, do you believe that an inert, lifeless substance that has no will, no spirit, no life force can somehow overtake your free will? and force you somehow, some in some mysterious way, force you to consume it. I mean, that's what we're really talking about, and that's mythology. It, it doesn't have that power. It never has. Because Michelle's going to give you a statistic about how many people actually get over these problems that you will never hear about in treatment. And I want you to listen to this statistic right now.
1: Over 90% of people who qualify as addicted... That's heavy substance users that, that can be diagnosed with substance use disorder, which is what it is called today, get over it. Most actually get over it on their own. But I want to talk a little bit about feeling powerless because, they, you know, when I give that to statistic, a lot of people think, oh, now it's just a, it's just a matter of will. Right. I they just get, have they to, get mad. Yeah, they get yeah. mad. They're like, so, so I'm basically, um, you know, I'm weak-willed. Is that my problem? It isn't. It isn't. I remember feeling powerless I know Mark remembers feeling powerless yep, absolutely we grew up in AA so we grew up with that idea emblazoned in our head that that alcoholics cross a line where they're powerless and and the things that I learned when I first went to AA as a as a person who had to go for myself you know the feelings of powerlessness were very real and so that's what made the conning baffling and and um, powerful. A powerful part of it seemed real, even though it made no sense. I'm an intellectual, I'm a researcher. I'm like that
0: sounds like crap to me. Yes it's- it, it doesn't make sense, but at the same token, I don't know how to stop. And, and that's why when you have something that is when you're at a point in your life where you're vulnerable, which is when yes. you you're trying to quit drinking and drugging and you're vulnerable, and then somebody says this thing, this, this booze or these drugs are cunning, baffling, and powerful. You feel baffled. You feel like it's against you. You feel like there's two people within your own head because you're deliberating deeply about whether you still have a preference for this drug or alcohol. Um, and, and so you're, you're in this strange spot um, and this idea of powerlessness is attractive because it gives an excuse. It gives some black and white reason if you don't really think about it and you just emotionally uh, are at that spot where you are. I want to change, but I don't know, I feel powerless. When you're in that state, um, that kind of argument, the cunning, baffling, powerful argument sounds correct. But when you logically, you get rid of the emotion and you start to really look at whether you, you, do I really believe that alcohol has some life force against me? Is it pitting wit against wit here? That's ridiculous. On its face, it's ridiculous. But when enough people are saying it at that AA meeting and they're drilling it in your head and you feel hopeless and you're at that vulnerable spot, the truth is if somebody had walked up to me and said, Mark, you're completely capable of getting past this. You you just need to change some things in your life. You need to really decide whether booze provides you the, the benefits you think it's providing you. You need to analyze that and spend a little time doing that. I would have said, you know, that makes sense. And that's exactly what we do at our retreats, but that's, that's a whole different topic. But, um, and that's what we show in the freedom model. So we picked this apart. We've picked it apart for 30 years. Um, so yeah, you're not, you're, you need to know you are not powerless. You may feel powerless temporarily until you understand what actually is happening, which is that you have a deep reverence and preference for the, your drug of choice. And that can change. That's what's important for you to know, that it can change and you can move on. You can move past it. And you don't have to be in a recovery-centered lifestyle for the rest of your life.
1: I want you to ask yourself a question and really think about it. If you were actually powerless, I want you to think back on all the times that you used and then stopped. Just abruptly stopped. Because nobody uses from birth. And nobody uses continuously. I mean, continuous. There's always a stopping point. And the truth is, if people were actually powerless, nobody would ever stop. They wouldn't stop to go to work. They wouldn't stop to go to a meeting. They wouldn't stop
0: to, to go to sleep, right? And that's, that's a real important point because when you talk about powerlessness or a diseased state, which are saying the same thing, that's an absolute. You don't get cancer halfway. You don't say, I'm going to have it on payday and then when the money runs out, the cancer is going to go away for a day or two. Right. You can't say like they say in AA, one day at a time with my cancer. Um, you know, I'm going to have it this day and this day I'm not going to have it. Diseases don't work that way. You know, It's not how it works. They kill you if you lived in that sort of delusion. You would die from it. So, really what we have is a belief system right and that beliefs are incredibly powerful because what constitutes making a human being is really your mind that's who you are it's what you think so if you think you're powerless you become it and that's the detriment that treatment provides human beings it hurts people by teaching them they have no power and when you believe that it becomes true i look at it, i'm a product of the AA culture. I grew up in it, steeped in it. My parents were involved. My brothers and sisters were involved. Many rehab stays. I've attended more than 3,000 AA meetings in my lifetime. I know the model. I know it. I taught it for years, even though I was a skeptic and thought it was ridiculous at points. But it was in that whole mission to try and prove that AA worked that I found it didn't. And and exactly. what a wonderful thing from a research point of view and that's how I became a researcher was by pro- trying to prove that AA would work and Michelle was involved in that, in that uh, study as well. This goes back, the research goes back over 30 years ago. So um, you're not powerless unless you believe you are but Michelle made a great point and that is if you were truly diseased and could not stop yourself, that once you did cross that line that they talk about, which is totally a made-up concept, um, if that were in fact true, you could not stop because a disease state, as you know, can't be stopped. It, it it takes a course of its own, and if you are truly powerless, you would die. You would simply drink or drug yourself to death. Now, here's the unfortunate part. Treatment and 12-step support groups teach you that you will inevitably get there, and so you start behaving that way. And so you start believing it, and your use accelerates. Then, then they describe the struggle to stop. Right. When in reality, she gave you the statistics. It's true, the largest studies in the world conducted over many decades prove that nearly everybody that drinks and drugs at heavy usages stops. They stop. And most didn't go to treatment. The vast majority did not go to treatment. They just stopped. And these are heavy users so uh, the reality is when we looked at the fact that AA didn't work and 12 steps didn't work and um, treatment was harming people we said well what did the 90 percent do all these people out of the treatment community what did they do and that's really where we found out that well you as a substance user can simply stop if you have provided the right information
1: people literally change their mind they change their preferences, and and you know that because if you look back on your life, I mean, I went through even as a heavy substance user, I didn't use the same substance all the time. I mean, alcohol was kind of a common thread for me, right, your but um, yeah, that was that was what I always went back to. But I I had a little a little foray into opiates. You know that lasted about six months, and I was I was a pretty heavy opiate user for that time. I, I used marijuana for a really long time for for a few years daily. We laced it with different things. PCP was the most common one. I mean, so I I started and stopped different drugs um, right throughout my substance use history. without even thinking anything about it. And I think that's the experience of most heavy substance users is that, you know, we, you know, and we see that in the research too, where Steve has a, a, a lot more of this research where the, you know, opiate users on average use opiates about five years. They, they remedy it in over five years that's about what they do once they go to treatment and you know and they start down um, down the uh, the, the re- revolving door that extends it and for some people it extends
0: it over a lifetime and 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 well if you were to look at the death rates the highest percentage of death and overdoses after treatment it is because of the because of the hopelessness narrative and the confusion that happens, in regards to tolerance so people leave treatment they have no idea what's going on they they think they can use to the same levels and they die and they assume that they're going to be a problematic user um, they assume they can't moderate that they can't adjust their levels of use that they can't stop um, so as soon as they leave treatment they go off the deep end um, and we've seen that with drinkers with AA for for decades and decades and decades of research it shows that uh, binge usage skyrockets after you go to AA. I mean, it just skyrockets. And if you have a control group where they don't go to AA, it doesn't. They moderate or they stop on their own. So uh, so we know, we absolutely unequivocally know that treatment and AA are harmful to your chances of getting over this problem. And that's a simple fact. And yet we keep doing it and and trying to push more and more people into treatment
1: you've heard us talk about we're kind of putting 12-step programs and treatment as one lump sum we we call that here the recovery society recovery community because all treatment is based in the 12-step model even treatment programs that say they're non-12-step what they do is they take you off-site for a 12-step meeting and they do different group therapies and things like that during the daytime um but all treatment is rooted in the disease-based 12-step model and that's why their success rates are so incredibly low i mean if you you know in 12-step the first you have to take the first step every day I, you know i admit i'm powerless over alcohol my life had become unmanageable um I, I can recite them all to you if, if you want to know because i too was raised in the 12-step you know treatment paradigm and uh went to you know uh Alateen meetings and Al-Anon meetings as a kid. My family it <laughs>, laughs that if
0: they had Alatot, we would have oh, Yeah,
1: Alla Tot. <laughs> I think they had it. I remember hearing about it because my siblings were younger. Um and then and then I went to an ACOA meeting, which is adult children of alcoholics when I was in college and it was it was shockingly bad. I mean, I I you know, I'd been to these other meetings, but this one it was so. It was sad. I mean, I laugh about it because it's so absurd. But it was literally a bunch of forty and fifty year olds. Now, I'm not saying that's old because I'm fifty now. But back then, I was twenty. You know, twenty, twenty, twenty-one years old, and it was a bunch of forty, fifty year olds whining about their childhood with their drunken parents. And I thought, really, really. I, I mean, and that's the thing about about AA and recovery in and of itself is recovery keeps you tied. To a past that was horrible, yeah. that that you that you wanted to get out of. So why would you want to keep yourself tied to this this past? Don't, most people truly do want to move past it and move on, and 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 we've seen that the truth is most people do, as long as they don't go to treatment. Right. You know the 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 um, rates of moving on, the rates of I, I hate to use the term recovery because without a disease there is no recovery. Um, but they actually uh, are lower with people that go to treatment than people that do nothing
0: at all. Yeah. Uh, Michelle mentioned um, non-12-step, and I want to I wanna talk a little bit about the history of non-12-step, the whole category non-12-step. Um, when people find us, when they find the free Model Retreats or the free Model Books that we have or any of the products and services we offer, they're usually searching on the Internet or somewhere on non-12-step, and then they find us. Um, non twelve step, she mentioned, doesn't mean what it once meant. We, when we started the whole non twelve step movement, um, there were other organizations that predated us, meaning the freedom model, um, like SMART Recovery and Rational Recovery. They could be considered non twelve step, but they still adhere to meetings and some structure that keeps people tied to their to their problem. Um, they're they're better than AA, but they're but they're still there's elements of the AA model that aren't beneficial to people, so when we were really the the first residential non-12-step model in existence in America or in the world, really, um, and I, I just I just wanted to say that now what's happened is non-12-step doesn't mean what it once did. It uh, you know you have a lot of treatment providers that that saw that. Uh, a lot of people wanted non-12-step, and so what they did is they say they're non-12-step when in actuality they do a bait-and-switch. They, they sort of get people to come to their rehab based on this idea that, that the person doesn't want to go to AA or a 12-step program, but then when they get to that rehab, they end up going to AA anyway. So uh, there's a lot of that sort of nonsense that goes on. So I just want to be clear about defining that really there's only one non-12 step residential model and that's ours and uh, it, that's pure in the in the sense that um, we don't equivocate and we don't try to be all things to all people that's important to know so the freedom model is a different model um, also I want to make a point about detox um, when we talk about uh, withdrawal and treatment being harmful in a lot of cases um, We're not talking about treatment in the respect of detoxification, medical detox. There are cases where a person needs medical detox. They need a medical protocol to wean themselves off of the drug of choice, maybe alcohol or benzodiazepines or something like that. So in that case, detox is a treatment because it is actually a medical protocol to help the person detoxify their body. That's why it's called detox. Um, And and that's very beneficial and life-saving. When we're talking about treatment in general, as we have been for the last half hour, we're talking about rehab, okay, where you go and you go to group therapy and you go to AA meetings and you're stuck in some facility for 30 days to a year. Um, And that's what we're talking about. So I want to make a very clear distinction right from the beginning that when we're talking about treatment, we're talking about rehab. That's that's the sort of... um, that that spreads the fictitious disease model we are not talking about detoxification which can save lives so that's those are two points i needed to make
1: as you listen to our podcast you'll notice that we use some different different vernacular i really want to change um our goal is to change the way people view substance use and addiction so we we don't even like the term addiction even though it's in our title because it implies Whereas addiction really is a love of something, it is something that you you like doing and you you might do daily.
0: Right, it's a repetitious habit.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But addiction in in the treatment world means that you're powerless. It, it's synonymous with a lack of control. So so I don't like it in terms of that. I don't like the term recovery. Because it implies that you are recovering from a disease, from something that is that, that is a sickness. We don't like the term relapse because it implies that you have relapsed into this
0: disease. Right, uncontrollably relapsed, which is the talk of disease, right?
1: Right, and um, craving, uh, what a craving is, is it's a thought that, geez... I think I'd like to get high right now. I think that would be something I want to do. Um, you know, so a craving is just a thought. It has no power, but the, but the treatment world has given cravings power over people's lives. Um, I'm trying to think of some other words that we don't, we, we, we change. We talk about substance use. We talk about, uh, I don't like disorder. I mean, they call it now substance use disorder because it implies that, that people cross a line where they lose control. I mean, all of these things are designed so that insurance can pay uh, big bucks for treatment, um, you know, the, these diagnoses. And and I don't think that, that using that language decreases stigma, even though a lot of people believe that it does.
0: Yeah, Me- falsely medicalizing behaviors is is lying to people. How is it beneficial to tell people that a behavior is a medical condition, right? Um, You're behaving, you're choosing to drink because you have a preference for alcohol, let's say you have a preference to be drunk, and then you medicalize it by calling it alcoholism as a disease. that's, That's wrong, it's simply false. So the question becomes what is the motive and Michelle just hit on it, it's money. You know, it's a massive $36 billion a year industry that if you medicalize a behavior that's common and drinking is fairly common as is drug taking, um, you build an industry around it and the helpers, meaning the rehabs, quote unquote, the helpers, have now a job. And it employs hundreds of thousands of people because they're now needed. If you have a disease of addiction, let's say that you, you believe that you do, then you need a helper or somebody to treat you. Now, in rehabs, it's it's kind of funny because the way they treat you is they talk to you in group therapy and you go to AA meetings. So I don't know many cancer patients that, you know, go to a meeting and get cured, but that's beside (laughs) the point. And pray. I mean, the truth
1: (laughs) is some people do pray and miracles do happen, but by and large, that's not the primary treatment mode.
0: (laughs) Right. Uh, Because it's a physical ailment that you can see and there are physical things that you can do to counteract it. There are not you know, going to a meeting is, is not going to stop you from drinking if you still prefer to get drunk. So the question becomes always, in all cases when it comes to substances, do you still like it? What do you value about it? What are the benefits of it that you find beneficial for you? And then you can, um, then you can decide whether those benefits are worth it. And if there are benefits, greater benefits, in adjusting your use or stopping. Which seems a heck of a lot more reasonable than um, this idea that you have to depend on a bunch of treatment professionals that don't even know you to tell you to stop in some moralistic way. So, um, so yeah, that's it. Well, i want to I want to look at and just
1: have you think about for a moment the idea that uh, calling this behavior a disease reduces stigma, because it is the one of the number one. Um, Complaints people have about about our model, and that is, oh, you're, you know, you're just saying these people are bad people. They're immoral and they're wrong. They're weak willed, which we talked about earlier. And the truth is, we're not saying that at all. And I I truly know that our approach uh, would reduce stigma a whole lot more because the stigma is not based on on you know disease or no disease. I, if you honestly look at it, if you're somebody that that loves someone that has a substance use problem. Or you yourself have a substance use problem, have you felt like people weren't judging you? Of course they are. Of course they are. This is the only, the dichotomy of the disease model is that you are treated, you're diagnosed with a disease, you're told that you're powerless, you're treated, and then when you relapse, it's the, or relapse, go back to substance use. It is the only disease where you, are blamed. You're blamed because you didn't work hard enough in the treatment model. You didn't do the things you were supposed to do, which require you to make a choice. You didn't make the choice not to use substances. So, so the treatment didn't fail you, but you failed the treatment. And let's try to apply that with any other disease.
0: Uh, you know, you, yeah, have a relapse of cancer. Most people pity the person.
1: Yeah, they're you're not you're, blamed you're,
0: <laughs> for for kicked
1: out of your house. <laughs> yeah,
0: kicked out of your house and and brought to jail and your license taken away and all these types of things. But but basically, you're not judged harshly because let's say you have a relapse of cancer. Maybe maybe you smoked. You got lung cancer. You quit smoking, and um, and so now you you have lung cancer. You it's eradicated. You don't go back to smoking. You just simply live your life, and then you get cancer again. Can you imagine if everybody reacted the same way? You failed You failed your, your protocol. You failed at, at eradicating cancer. I mean, it's, it's, it, that would be awful. That would be awful.
1: Unconscionable.
0: Because it's a real disease, and people know the difference. They know the difference between cancer and choosing to drink alcohol in a problematic way. They know the difference. People know it. That's why they don't react that way. No matter how many times the treatment professional says, you have a disease of addiction, they would not react the same way with a genuine cancer victim. Do you really think that somebody who takes heroin is a victim of heroin? Now, that's been mainstreamed, that idea. But when it really comes down the pike, there is no pity. There's just blame, anger and more controlling of that person and it's you know they control the person through treatment methods through the court system and what fundamentally drives this this behavior when it comes to people getting high and how people react to it is really that our society does not agree with substances using substances heavily and there's a huge moralistic judgment associated with it Um, So it's all mixed up. This disease thing doesn't work. The moralistic side doesn't work. What works is looking at it for what it truly is, which is a series of choices that an individual makes because they have a preference uh, for heavy use. They like being buzzed up. And uh, I know I did. And then I grew out of it. I just moved on. Um, And you can too, or your loved one can too, if provided the right information. But going down the false disease narrative isn't the right way. Or it's not the most effective way. You can do it, certainly, but it's going to end in disaster and sadness.
1: Lastly, one of the main reasons that we're going through all of this with you, one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast, this series, is because people are dying. They're dying from misinformation. They're dying because they believe that they're powerless. They go to treatment and the death rates go up tremendously after treatment, not just from accidental overdose, but also from suicides and car accidents. Right. Accidental and, death. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, um,
0: it's unnecessary.
1: Completely, completely uh, there's a thing called learned helplessness. If you teach people they
0: can't help themselves, then they, then they believe that they can't, then they won't. And they will become a ward of the treatment complex, the recovery society. They become a part of that. And even when when uh, people finally stop in that rehab system, they're never free. They're never free. Always in the back of their mind, there's a hitch. And the hitch is you're still an addict after all. And that's just wrong. That's just simply fabricated myths that people believe and it's really detrimental um it's not beneficial to tell people that they're sick for the rest of their lives when they could simply move on
1: and it's not compassionate it's not compassionate and and it's a lie it's a lie and the and the solution is not and because i'm saying that doesn't mean i'm saying that people are weak willed they're not they're not what they are is they're engaging in a behavior that they deem to be beneficial to them in some way shape or form so you know it doesn't take willpower to uh, you don't need a bunch of willpower to make a change what you need is to figure out how much you really like the behavior how much you value it which we've said before and then and then figure out if you could possibly be happier by changing that behavior by reducing it or by you know letting it go altogether
0: that's a great point, Michelle, because uh, there's this idea that our model is predicated on greater willpower. No, it's, it's not about willpower. It's about making a choice, an informed choice. People ask me all the time, so what do you think is why that guy keeps going back to heroin? Well, it can be. He just prefers it. But then you have the guy who, who really is struggling I mean, he's struggling. He doesn't even know why he does it. And a lot of that has to do with our culture, the confusion. He's sitting there saying, why do I keep going back to it? Why am I powerless? And the reason is, is because he's been taught he is. He's horribly confused with the misinformation. He's got a deep struggle that's going on inside of himself about the fact that he really doesn't like getting high that much anymore, but it's better than being sober because the alternative that treatment provides is so abysmal. It's such a sad narrative that you're always going to crave, that you're always going to love the the object of your desire, that you'll never get over it, that you'll always be in need of treatment. All of those things are so utterly depressing that the person will continually go back to getting high because what treatment does is it makes the drug more attractive, not the opposite and that's the great crime here. So, so the question becomes, is there a better way? And after 30 years of research, we can tell you absolutely there is. Um, and the first thing we do with somebody when, when they come to one of our retreats or, or if they're having private instruction with us or whatever it might be, um, is I ask them, what, what are the benefits of getting high? Which is shocking to the person because they're so used to the rehab game where they're told that they have to abstain. I say, what are the benefits? Because if we can understand why the person enjoys it at some level, at some level the person still finds benefit in it. If we can find that, we can work and make progress on figuring out an alternative solution or, or alternative way of getting high less, you know, moderating or, or abstaining. Um, and if they can find those benefits greater than the, the usage pattern they have right then, um, then they choose that so you have to you have to explore based on the benefits so this is just one of the angles that we take the point is if you if you try to scare people into abstinence it doesn't work and that's what the treatment community tries to do
1: that, that that's that is a great point um, that the treatment model currently today is based on forcing people to accept that they're powerless over an inert substance and scaring them so that abstinence becomes the only choice you know it it, jails institutions or death is what you're faced with you can either be totally abstinent or go to jails institutions or death that's what you have in your future you know you have these you know not yet why i never got arrested well you will you will get arrested if you go back to drugs you go back
0: to alcohol um, you will, you know, crash your car. You will lose your wife. You'll lose your job. You'll be in court. You'll, you yeah. Know, it's, it's the scare tactics are endless. And, and truthfully, statistically, that's not true. Nope. Unless you stay in that model, you believe it, you feel guilty in your drinking, you binge drink, then those rates do go up. But you don't have to. It's not inevitable because it's not a disease. It's not an uncontrollable disease. So the the whole thrust, as you can see, we're hitting it from every different little angle here, is that you're totally capable of change. And most people just don't know that. And the vast majority of people don't go to treatment. It's important to know. Luckily, thank God they don't. Uh, They're not taught this narrative to the level that somebody that goes to treatment is taught it. And consequently, they get over their problem. They move on. And here's another funny fact. People who go to treatment or AA and succeed would have succeeded anyway. Right. You know, so the, the treatment community and people will say, well, some people get, good, get well in AA. Well, some people get well in AA, out of AA, in a mix of AA. <laughs> but but AA isn't what did it. Scaring somebody didn't do it. They still had to have made a choice. In the end, the individual is the only thing that can stop their habit. So whether they go to AA or they didn't go to AA, the same law of rational thinking applies, and that is they had to make the choice whether they went to a meeting or not. Lots of people go to meetings and drink, and the people that didn't, didn't because they wanted to change, not because the meeting made them change. There's no external way that uh, something changes a person. So it's important to know that the individual is still choosing. So they got well in spite of the meetings, not because of it.
1: Yeah, they came to the conclusion that they could be happier without it they could be happier abstaining or they could be happier moderating i can't tell you how many people from our aa days that i know that will freely admit now that oh i was drinking occasionally i was smoking a little pot i you know i took some pills here and there and you know every time i hear it now i think that makes sense yeah you know because because people can and do moderate all the time all the time and, and you look at some 30 year AA person and just maybe they've been sober all that time, but I'd be willing to bet there are a few yeah you know, there have been a few hot toddies in there occasionally and um, and they're not not as as pious as you might think they are um, because when you look at the data, the vast majority of people, you know they, they don't completely abstain forever and ever right. and ever. And a lot of people, you know it's it's pretty onerous to go uh, if you if you're somebody that's gone to meetings and Mark and I went to several mm-hmm. um, we we were we sponsored literally hundreds of people um, it's when you come back from a relapse oh god i mean you know talk about lack of compassion yeah
0: guilt mongering and shaming oh, oh it's,
1: god it's horrible brutal. horrible it, which by by the way makes drinking that much more attractive or doing drugs that much more attractive when you're faced with, you know, the consequences of, of, you know, when one drink to to someone equals a hundred drinks, um, you know, you might as well take a hundred drinks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The mob mentality of, of AA and the treatment community is brutal. It always has been. Um, so I, I want to end this, this podcast on a, on a positive note. We've talked about a lot of things fairly quickly And it might seem like we have an ax to grind with treatment or with AA. Um, Because these institutions are sacred cows in in Western society, some people might be offended by all of this. I mean, it might be very hard to understand what we're saying. Um, I encourage you to just read our book, The Freedom Model. This isn't an ad, but I got to say it because we have all of these myths debunked in writing, with all of the citations, everything is footnoted, you'll see all the research that's been done over the last uh, almost hundred years uh, in, in one place, and, uh, and you'll see that it's not really an emotional argument, it's a scientific one. And the question really becomes, do people have free will or not? At, at, in the end analysis, if we don't, if we're predetermined to be addicts and alcoholics, well then I suppose 10% of the population is doomed. Um, but I was one of those people and I wasn't doomed. I rejected the AA model after a while. I said, this doesn't make logical sense. And uh, that was 30 years ago. I'm glad I made that decision. I started researching this problem and, uh, and it took a long time. It took a good 20 years to really understand um, the model, the treatment model, the detox model, and what we were attempting to do, the Freedom Model. So you can be free. You can change your preferences for drugs and alcohol. You can moderate irrespective of what drug you're doing uh, or how bad your habit seems to be. I've seen some of the absolute heaviest users moderate and have fantastic lives. I've also seen them abstain. I'm not a proponent of abstaining, moderating, or heavy use. That might sound like I'm confusing you. My point is I don't, I don't give credence to any option above the other. I'm not telling you to moderate. Our model doesn't say to moderate. It doesn't say to abstain. It doesn't say to have heavy use. What we say is you get to choose what you feel is best for you because you're an autonomous, free-thinking adult or adolescent or whatever, but individual. And uh, you get to choose. It's all about choices and knowing that you have choices. And when you, when you know that, you won't be scared anymore. And that's a wonderful freedom. Don't forget to like us at our Facebook page, The Freedom Model. And also, if you found this podcast helpful and informative, please take a moment and give us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Blubbery. Again, thank you for listening to the Addiction Solution Podcast.